Hello, and welcome to She Speaks 2, the podcast where we share the stories of African Americans who have made an impact in their communities from the South Carolina Lowcountry and beyond. I am your host, Patricia Blygen Jones. Join us on She Speaks 2. Good afternoon, Reverend Dr. Charles Christopher Hayward Sr. How are you? I am doing wonderful, Reverend Patricia Jones. Thank you so much for agreeing to sit down for an interview with me for my podcast, She Speaks Too. So let's get right into it, Doc. You're a native son, born on Johns Island. You were born and raised, attended school. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up on Johns Island and being one of several students to integrate St. John's High School. Okay. Um, I am... Uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Charles C. Hayward Sr., which means there is a junior, mm-hmm. <laughs> born and raised on Johns Island to the Reverend St. Julian Hayward and Christine Hayward, Christine Capers Hayward. I am number 12 of 13 children. I have, I have seven uh, brothers, um, of which now six are deceased, um, five sisters, of which one is deceased. Uh, of my siblings, four of us have become pastors. Um, the Reverend Isaac Hayward, uh, the Reverend Dr. Isaac Hayward, who introduced full-time uh, gospel radio broadcasting to South Carolina. Wow. Uh, just passed away in August. We lost him to COVID-19. Uh, my brother Alfred Hayward um, is an uh, African Methodist Episcopal pastor, like my dad was. Uh, my youngest sister, Susan, is now with the, the St. John's Amy Church, um, our home church, uh, but she was ordained in Connecticut, First Cathedral, uh, by Bishop um, Leroy Bailey. Uh, she's since moved home from retirement, and then myself as a clergy. Uh, I was raised in a very protective environment, um, a relationship between home, school, and church. Right. Um, if you got in trouble in school, Miss um, Crawford, Miss Little John, uh, our principal, her mom and dad already knew before you got home. Always. Uh, at church, uh, my cousin Robbie Freeman, who was the long-term Sunday school superintendent, um, had very much to do with uh, my Christian upbringing in terms of um, church life. I used to win all of the daily vacation Bible school um, scriptural memory contests. Right. Um, participated in the choir, uh, young people ministry, um, and then certainly at home. Uh, my dad was a, a great preacher, great preacher, um, a little man in terms of size, maybe about five one or so. Wow! Uh, but he's a he's a big voice, uh, highly regarded as one who would speak up and speak out. And, and if I've gotten anything from him, not in terms of ministry. It is certainly coming to understanding that somebody has to speak up. Somebody has to speak up and be, speak out. Speak up and speak out. Somebody, if nobody does, nothing changes. And so, uh, that protective environment for me um, uh, existed uh, until I uh, actually participated in the integrating of the high school in 1965. Uh, but I grew up on the farm. My first memory, my first memory of working on the farm was age four. What pulling grass, pulling oh grass, pulling the weeds. That's that's all we had to do. Wow. Um, and there was, uh, my understanding, some compensation for our kids who did that. Uh, um, we did a little farming ourselves. Uh, I know that when tough times came, 
It was the snap beans that my daddy planted that, in the okra. Mm -hmm. uh, the daddy planted and mama harvested and took down to the market, downtown Charleston, Market Street. Uh, that was pretty much part of our farming experience and our economics uh, to get us through some tough times. Right. A lot of people don't know, Pat, that, that my, my parents lost three homes by fire. Oh, um, I, I remember you saying something about one. I didn't realize there were yeah, three total. Yeah, one before I was born, one when I was eight, one when I was 16. Um, and um, actually, the brick home on John's Island is the first brick home uh, that, that any, anybody would testify to built by my dad on John's Island. Wow. Yeah. Um, How did you all recover, though? I mean, hey, can you speak a little bit to that? How did your parents recover you know. Well, you know, the, the, the church, homeschool and church, the church relationship, I, I, I know, too, that, that church was never really able to pay. Uh, and so when dad came home with a trunk full of food or a trunk full of vegetable or butchered meat, you know, that was part of his compensation. But there was always help in the community um, when, when things went down and building back. Um, my dad did the floor plan, did the design. He... He knew the 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 um, the craftsmen, right? right? Many of the masons. Uh, so he knew those guys, and and so the, much of that help came from his garnering the resources, buying the material, and having um, church members, uh, members and the people in the community reaching out and help rebuild rebuild our homes. All right. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so so uh, I'm I'm a child of the manse. All right, preacher's mm -hmm. kid and taught self-respect, taught manners, to believe in self, and to understand that uh, daddy had no problem, mama had no problem, that you king, you a queen, um, you, 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 you are descendants of king and queens, not of slaves. Right. Uh, that, was, that, was a, that was staple for, my, for our household in terms of understanding who we are and who we would become. And bold and oh, forward thinking. You know, very much so, very much so. Because if you're not careful, every now and then I'm ha when I have a conversation with people and they say, well, slaves, I'm like, wait a minute, no one's born a slave. You know, if you're born free, you become you, enslaved. You enslaved. Yeah. yeah, and so, and I don't think, and when you say it, people are like, oh, I never thought about that. It's the psychology of it all. Really, it's the, the psychology of it all. You have to watch language, words. Words have meanings. Yeah. And you and have it, to be careful how you how you use it. Yeah, words have meaning, and mm -hmm. if you don't, if you if you live by the meaning of the word, you'll be safe, right? Because you know which one to discard and then which one to hold on to, right? And so that's 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 who I am. I um I am I worth I have a strong work ethic. Um, I'm have a, I have an entrepreneurial spirit. I did my first transaction for pay at age sixteen. I did what was that? I did a tax return. So, and and every when you know when you get your social security compensation list that it was three hundred and forty dollars that first pay yes. W two. Well, that first W two I did uh, another friend of mine since deceased. Um, I did his tax return for him for three dollars. At age sixteen. At age sixteen. Wow. That's right. And so um, I love it. And you know what? In that transaction, you may not believe this, but I'm telling you the whole truth, nothing but the truth. In that transaction, I learned something. You know, I said to myself, greed is dangerous because I could have charged him whatever I wanted right. and he would have paid me, regardless of the level of work. 
that I had to do or effort I had to make. And so I knew then, one, I want to be an entrepreneur, an honest one, but I knew then, you know, you could be very greedy mm-hmm. and that's not, and that's not good. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's pretty much who I am in mind and spirit. Okay. So talk to us about school. You started out at Mount Zion Elementary. Take us from there to St. John's. Okay. Um, I was in the first, first grade class, 1956, when Mount Zion opened. The same Mount Zion that still exists today. Same Mount Zion that still exists on River Road. Um, Miss Linton was my first grade teacher. Miss Little John was my principal. Um, and um, I have I have emotions about that school every time I passed it. Hadn't been in there in years. And then uh, so that first sixth through seventh grade, and then eighth grade, uh, um, uh, graduated. Uh, and went to Hart Gap High School mm-hmm. for eighth and ninth grade, uh, and then in 1965, at integration, um, made a decision um, on my own, supported by my parents, that I would be in the group that would integrate St. John's High School. Okay, let's backtrack a little. You said something about every time you go past the school, it brings up emotions. Different emotions for you. You're talking about Mount Zion. Mount Zion, yeah. Okay, what types of, um, what comes up for you? Beginning, beginning. Um, my, my brothers, my older brothers and sisters, uh, all of them except me and my younger sister went to Mount Zion. Everybody else went through was Promised Land School, which is which is in our immediate neighborhood. And then um, the older ones went from Promised Land to Hart Gap right. for high school. Um, but myself and... My sister Susan was the first that actually went to Mount Zion from elementary, from elementary school. And so, uh, whenever I pass the school, I'm thinking about my beginnings. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about uh, my childhood. I'm thinking about the contributions of of uh, Miss Linton, Miss mm-hmm. Bradley, Miss Cook. Miss Richardson. And all of your teachers were African American. All of them were African Americans. Um, and certainly Miss Crawford. You know, Miss Crawford is like everybody knew Miss Crawford, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you can't talk about elementary school and not talk about Miss Addie Crawford. Yeah. Is she are, are any of your teachers still living that you know of? I think Miss Cook is still living. Uh, would be the one that comes to mind immediately. Um, she's, the, she's the only one I think that may, I think that Miss Bradley, I don't, Miss Bradley may still be living. I think I've heard that she is. Okay. But these are second and fourth grade teachers. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So from Mount Zion to Hart To Hart Gap. And then? I went to Hart Gap my, my uh, eighth and ninth grade year. One of the significant story from Hart Gap in the eighth grade Miss um, Singleton's class, um, after lunch, there was a great scream down the hallway, and uh, she got up real quickly and went out in the hallway and came back uh, a moment or two later with a red face mm-hmm. and announced to her eighth grade class uh, that John F. Kennedy had just been assassinated. And how did that make you feel? I mean, what was your response? You know, you just hearing it. Uh, how, how did you process it? I, I, I processed who would, who would want to kill John F. Kennedy. I remember at age 10, uh, 1960, 
right? He would, during the campaign, and he would have been inaugurated January of 61, that as a 10-year-old, um, I'm watching what everybody in the environment is saying is going to be transitional because uh, he's going to be the first Catholic and he's going to be fear to black people. Whoa! And so I'm a 10-year-old interested in, in this president, maybe not politics per se, but this president, mm -hmm. and then I'm sitting at, you know, three years later in my eighth grade class and he's a sad, who would want to kill John Kennedy? Yeah. Uh, and so it was, a, it was in a child's mind how wrong and how illegal that was, not knowing the magnitude of it mm -hmm. until, until you get older, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that was, listen, I was, I was, um, I was a cheerleader. At Hot Gap. At Hot Gap? I was a male cheerleader at Hot Gap. That's did, right. How did that happen? What led you to... Um, Carol Blake, a dear friend of my brother, um, and um, uh, I was athletically inclined. And because I didn't, wasn't on the football team, and Carol was a cheerleader and, and was a source of encouragement for me going out, Al, Al, my brother Alpha was not on the team. He was, a, quote, back then we called him the water boy. <laughs> and so, listen, to be involved in football, one way to do that was to be a cheerleader. Okay. So I was a cheerleader in eighth and ninth grade at Hartcliffe High School. A lot of people don't know that. No, I'm hearing it. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't start being a cheerleader until I got to college. Because by the time I got to college, as an Alpha man, okay. I transferred from Allen University to Albany State, mm -hmm. and I went out. I was a transfer, right? So right. the brothers don't know me on campus. So when I show up, and and they find that I'm on the, I'm on the cheering squad. Nah, that yeah. not that didn't go over too well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I I, I quit I quit um, the cheering squad at Albany, of Albany State University. Okay. Um, and so so then, to St. John's, when uh, I used to spend my summers in New York after mm -hmm. working on the farm. We'd, go to um, New York City for the summer, work in a supermarket. But I came home um, 65 and school was being integrated. School had already opened before this opportunity uh, to integrate the school came along. And, um, and, and I can mention to you uh, the leadership of uh, uh, Mr. Esau Jenkins, uh, Robbie Fields, um, Robbie Freeman, um, um, Richard Simmons, um, my dad, mm -hmm. uh, um, when um, I mentioned um, um, Bill Saunders. Uh, all pillars of the community. All pillars sure. of the community. And so when that opportunity came, uh, I thought, hey, you know, uh, things should change and, and um, academically. And I, I was willing to go. I talked to my mom and dad. And they didn't, they supported me. I want, I want to be clear about that. They didn't make a decision for me. Uh, um, they supported my interests. And, um, and so I made the decision to be in that original group that integrated St. John's High School in 65. So what was that like? Uh, Do it you was remember what your first day was like? It was hell. Okay. First day. Um, it was, um, remember we said earlier about homes, mm -hmm. 
church and school. Coming at village, yeah. Yeah, the village. And but this school this school was not the in the village. village. Right, right. Um it was um let's start with the name calling. Uh, I tell people for the last forty five years you can't hurt my feeling calling me a name. <laughs> my white brothers and sisters, they were creative mm. with the name calling. Right. I mean from from ape the monkey, the dog, um, the N-word, and any number of creative ways, um, the tone of it, the degradation of it, the dehumanization of it. Um, and the psychology so, of it. Oh, yeah, to break your spirit, mm -hmm. to break your spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm used to name calling. You can call me a name, it ain't going to hurt my feelings because you done, you done been outdone. <laughs> there you go, get in line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've been kicked. I've been not slapped. I've been boxed in the face. I've been spat on. Are you? Oh my! Yeah. Punched um, in the face, and and how how did you respond? To push to push back and get out of harm's way back then. Um, it's 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 knowing that you're outnumbered and you're outgunned, and and therefore you don't you don't retaliate. That had to be frustrating, though. Very frustrating. It's dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 there, there's there's a story that lingers into who I am today. For that, we it, in other words, sometimes to get through, you have to be silent to get through. Mm -hmm. You may not push back, um, and I've. I've gone through that experience when asked at a conference um, at Stony Brook Conference in New York. Um, it's an African-American clergy conference and, and all of us gather around the table and the question was, how did you make it? Some of your friends are dead. They're buried in their graves. Some of your friends are alcoholics. They're, they're drug addicted because of what, what they, they went through. Mm -hmm. How did you get through? How did you make it? And the answer was we kept silent. You didn't say anything when we maybe should have spoke up. We walked away from it rather than retaliate and fight back. Um, and you lose the battle to win the war. Do you have any regrets about taking that that um, path though? I mean, you know, using that coping mechanism, using silence as a coping mechanism. Do you have any regrets about it? Regrets. I'm, 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 I'm. No, no, I don't have any regrets. Um, it was a matter. It was, of it was a matter of survival. It's, it's, it's the time, and I'll, I'll share another story with you about um, about that survival when it came to my athletic experience. But no, no regrets. Um, and would we do it the same way today? In, in a sense, yes, but with a, with a, with 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 the with the wisdom of maturity. I tell people today, and, and, and I say this to anyone who get a chance to to hear this conversation. We're in a position today as African Americans, particularly as African American, not particularly as African Americans, to decide how we're going to react before we have to react. Right. If you if you're not prepared to control your emotions and know how you're going to react, you're gonna be at great risk based on what's going on 
in our society, in our country today. And so that's much about my years at St. John's, um, having to know how to react in, in order to survive, to fight another day. So tell us about the, the time that you um, tried out for the football team, or the times. So I think you said you had a couple. There were a couple times that you Well, the, 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 well all three, I count all three years in that experience. The first year where the football team was already in place, school had opened, and so the excuse from the school through the coach was, it's too late because the team is already formed. That's my 10th grade year. In my 11th grade year, there was a series of actions that I had to take uh, without any assistance from uh, paperwork, examinations, um, uh, that made it impossible for timely completion so that at the completion of it, the team was going to vote the form team already into the season was going to vote on whether I can be on the team or not. Well, that vote was no. no. But, but for me, it was the coach's decision that it was going to be no. And then my senior year, uh, I did get uh, issued a uniform and we in practice, two-a-day practice mm -hmm. uh, for two full weeks. Um, back then, the final week of practice was leading into what was the Jamboree. Today, it's called the Satoma Classic. Right. Uh, well, um, on, in that last week, Monday, two-a-day practice, morning practice, I had been prepared as a defensive back for two weeks. I had, I had the number that I want, number 24. I wow. tell you that, too. Right. Um, but morning practice, I've been moved from defensive back to defensive line. And that coach ran every offensive play across my position on the defensive line. Trying I took, to discourage you. Trying, trying to discourage you. To drop, yeah. Same thing happened Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday morning. Um, needless to say, I took pretty good physical abuse to the point of Wednesday morning. I, I thought my neck might have been broken. Mm -hmm. um, and after, at least he took time to examine my condition and practice was over, I took off the uniform, stacked it, put it in the corner, and I showed up for the first day of class. How did that make you feel, though, that you had to walk away from it in order to save your life? Well, and that was the, that was the primary impetus, that I knew that his intentions was to make me quit. And I had come close enough to being injured um, that my health was at risk. Um, but I also felt a sense of disappointment um, that, I, that I had to quit. Um, I'm, I'm not a quitter. But I know that um, had I not granted him his desire, I may not even be here today. I may not be as healthy as I am today. And so it, 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 as a 17-year-old, um, being accused of quitting and giving up was not, and still not, at age 70, a good feeling. Um, 
I showed up for class, first day of class, and the assistant coach, uh, conversation, this is, this is home now. This is not even uh, the conversation about the football team because the football team was good. Those years were championship years uh, for St. John High School. Um, but he mentioned that, well, Hayward, Hayward came out, uh, <clears throat> but he didn't make it. He quit. Um, and that was a, that was a deep insult, deep insult, deep insult. But at 17, you know, what do you say, what do you do? And that's right, I took that emotional, psychological abuse. Um, and uh, that's one of the, and clearly that's one of the reasons why I have no affinity, no joy, no desire to spend any sense of quality time on the St. John's High School campus today. And, and I need to stop, I need to stop and, and thank you because uh, that's the class of 68 I graduated in. Right. Today I'm 70 years old and nobody has ever asked me to share my experience so that others might know uh, what it was like for me and my classmates at St. John's. I mean, I, I mean, as, as a regarded a career as I've had, <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Well, I think it's why? important. That, that, that's why I'm here. I think it's important for us to capture these stories because the generations to come need to understand that you know racism doesn't occur in a vacuum. You know, um, and it's just so far-reaching. I mean, it's generational. It seems like you can never get. You know, it seems like the more we advance, there's still some level of how can we, you know, how can we trip them up? And I don't want to sound paranoid. You know, I don't want to sound paranoid, but it just seems like there's always some new way to, you know, well, to, to oppress. To oppress, to prevent the fullness of our humanity mm -hmm. to be sheer experience regarded and rewarded. And so um, I know that in the class... <clears throat> Of 66, there were one African-American female that um, only went from January to graduation. Uh, in the class of 67 uh, was attorney Ed Brown, um, Viola Brown, who is the spouse to John Paul Brown, Amy Pastor, and then Leroy Brown, who became one of the, I think, acad acad admission administrators at Benedict College. So there were three Browns in that class of 67. In my class, uh, there were seven of us, um, uh, six black females, and I was the only black male in my class, class of 36 folks uh, that was in class of 68. Um, and and, uh, and things, things ended, I believe, with a sense of a growing regard for who I, for who I was. Um, I did not get to play football, um, but uh, I decided that I wanted to go out for the track team. Um, and so the first day back from Christmas holidays, mm -hmm. I had decided that I would go to the coach and ask permission to run track. I was six, that would have been sixth period. He sent for me fifth period. And, and so I went. And so uh, in essence, he's, you know, he said... Um, well, he had noticed that I had uh, pretty good, pretty good speed, 
and wanted to know whether uh, I wanted to come up for the track team. Right. So I said, I'd, I'd think about it. <laughs> I didn't want to give him the pleasure of an immediate yes. yes. You know, and that's age 17. That's pretty good right there. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. But no, I, I knew I didn't want to give him that pleasure. And so, I, and so the next day, I went back and told him I would, I would come up with the track team. First day of track practice, I go over to the broad jump pit. Because I don't know what event I'm going to run, right? Mm -hmm. um, I go up to the broad jump pit. And my first jump, I'm jumping pretty much the school record. Wow. And the other guys, they go crazy. You know, hey, coach, hey, coach. Hey, we can jump. Hey, we can jump. And he nosy on over there <laughs> and asked me to do it again. So I do it again and pretty much did the same thing. And so he, he knew immediately that he had a good, good athlete. Um, by the time the season was over, I, I had set the school record in the long jump. Um, I was on the record relay team for the sprint medley retail, re, re, relay. Right. I did the anchor lead leg, the 440. Um, I was only myself and the pole vaulter uh, qualified for state championships in Columbia at University of South Carolina. That's great. I, I didn't I didn't get to go. He didn't he, he arranged transportation for all of our meets. He arranged transportation for the lowest state, uh, where we set the record uh, for both the long jump and the sprint medley relay. Uh, but it was only two of us qualified to go to state championship. And to this day, did the pole vaulter go? Did he take the pole vault to go? Did the parents take him? I don't know. But there was no real effort for me to get to Columbia uh, to participate in the long jump um, at state championships in 1968. Um, I've got a very proud board of, of my high school record and my college uh, career as an athlete, both at Allen University and Albany State University that I'm, that I'm thankful for. But, but concluding my high school years, um, Flip Wilson, mm -hmm. remember Flip the Wilson? comedian, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here come the judge, yeah. here come the judge. Yeah. Well, our class play as seniors was centered around a Flip Wilson show and I played Flip Wilson sure. and um, did, a, did a pretty good job. And so uh, academically, I, I had great grades when I, um, I studied hard. Uh, you, we are, we are um, having this conversation at my home downstairs and uh, my uh, kitchen area is a table. It is a table um, that I grew up studying for three years. Didn't go to all the football games, didn't go to all the parties. Uh, I, I worked at academics because when I got there, I have to confess, I. Uh, white kids were pretty sharp. And it wasn't that they were smarter, it was that they were more exposed right. than, than we were. And so um, I had some, I, had, I worked hard to keep up and to perform well. And so my table downstairs um, from my parents' home is not in the best of shape, but, but it's in my home. Mm -hmm. That's a reminder. Cause it, 
that table where I studied, shaped me. It informed me that that space where I spent three years, homework, book reports, um, special case studies, French, algebra, English, while my friends were out at the football games and out at the parties, I stayed home and studied. Mm -hmm. Singular focus. I was singular focus. Singular focus. My grades were good. When I, when I transferred from Allen University to uh, Albany State, and I thought I was going to be losing credits, um, I, was, I, was, um, I had the highest academic average, uh, um, 388 at, at uh, Allen University. And when I transferred to Albany, uh, they accepted all of my credits. Uh, and um, learning, learning, I learned how to learn. When Elaborate I was 15, 16. You learn you how to learn. Um, for me, learning has to do with knowing what the teachers know and understanding how the teacher has crafted his or her curriculum mm -hmm. and information that they want you to leave with. So it's not merely receiving what is given, but understanding how the professor, how the teacher, how the writer, how the author has structured what they want you to get. Okay. So an ability to outline what is there gets you ahead of the game. Wow. You know, I learned how to interpret the pictures, um, the footnotes, all of those things are important. So I, I learned how to learn, how to listen, how to take notes, and how to learn. Mm -hmm. that, um, that Except for the CPA exam. <laughs> Not except, that's good. In the CPA exam, uh, um, I, I took a pre uh, a pre course. Um, it's called Newton, and and Newton, the instructor, he would say a um, an ounce of memory is worth a pound of brain. Mm. An ounce of memory is worth a pound of brain. And, and his point was for this exam, one time, just memorize it because you only need to memorize it once. Right. You don't have to know everything right. <laughs> because once you've passed the exam, you will know where to go to get what you need. And that's the other thing about um, learning how to learn, learning how to go to find what you how need. How to find the resources that you need. How to find the resources that you need, yeah. So then from St. John's to Allen and then to Albany, um, take us to Columbia Theological Seminary. I used to go to um, prayer meetings at Uncle Wednesday, my mom's brother, mm -hmm. Wednesday night, and folks used to pray. And you know, as kids, we go to sleep and we wake up, somebody, same person still praying. But anyway, 
it was those prayer meetings um, that led me to Christ at age 12. I'm old enough to remember what it means to go seeking at night out in the I bushes in the woods. Doing it. My grandmother was um, AME, and when she married my grandfather, who's a cradle, who was a cradle, <clears throat> excuse me, was a cradle Presbyterian, then she became yeah. Presbyterian as well. And he would tease her about going out seeking, seeking. like three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, so yeah. I remember that story. Well, at age 12, I did that and um, was received in St. John AME Church by the Reverend Herbert Brake. Um, and, and I said I never wanted to be a preacher. Uh, you know, sometimes we were being teased as being preacher's kid and I mm -hmm. wasn't healthy. Um, but I, I've always wanted to just do the right thing. And so by the time I went off to Allen, um, I, was, I was committed to the church, committed to my faith practice from youth ministry, uh, youth fellowship, YPD, they call it an AME church, young people department, mm -hmm. um, the choir. And when I went to, when I went to Allen, I never not, I never stopped going to church. And when I transferred from Allen University to Albany State, I never stopped going to church. I went to church every Sunday because I'm, I'm a, I'm a steadfast believer. Uh, in the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And so I would say to you, right around 18 and 19 years of age, uh, after high school, I began to feel uh, a sense of call because I can tell you that I told God I didn't want to be a preacher. I didn't want to be a preacher uh, because I was teased about being a preacher's kid. I didn't want to be a front because I spoke Gullah, Geechee, yeah. uh, and then feel like I had a handle on the language. Um, but right around age 20, God was clear that you are called to ministry. And then I started negotiating with God. You, you get me through this now, I'll, I'll answer the call. Mm -hmm. uh, got married uh, to Carolyn, a preacher's daughter. Uh, she never planned to marry a preacher. <laughs> um, but my early career as an accountant I find myself counseling folks, mm. and they would come back and tell me how blessed they were by my, by my guidance and my share, and all this is a ministry coming out of me. Right. Um, when Carolyn and I joined, uh, um, let's see if I can make this short, uh, she was a year behind me in school. I worked for the Great American Insurance Company, and the young man there, Ben Scott, operated a mailroom. He was marrying his sweetheart, who was a member of Presbyterian Church, Martha Scott. Ben asked me to be in his, his wedding, to stand in his wedding. He'd become a big brother to me. He's right. about 10 years older than I am. And from my first job, he's, my, he's a big brother. So he asked me to stand in his wedding. He said, well, you, you and Carolyn want to get married. Why don't you ask the pastor to, to marry you? So Friday is the Wedding rehearsal. I've never been in this church before. Wow. So he says, ask pastor to marry you and Carolyn. So I go to the pastor and say, well, my, my sweetheart and I want to get married. Uh, will you marry us? He said, well, not without premarital counseling. Saturday is the wedding. Wow. We do the wedding, and I jump in my Volkswagen and drove to South Georgia and asked 
Carolyn's father for her hand in marriage. This is a Baptist preacher. I understand, yeah. Who's going to let his unmarried daughter go up with her boyfriend to live in his apartment without being married? And father-in-law said, yes. Wow. We packed her stuff in my Volkswagen, drove back to Atlanta, and we went to pre-marriage. She stayed in one room. I stayed in another room. My brother Arthur was with us. He was in transition. And um, we went to premarital counseling. She found a job. She found a job at Spelman College. And we went to premarital counseling over two weeks. And two week, exactly two weeks later, June 30th of 1973, Reverend Sharp married us at the West Stills Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. What a beautiful story. We were there for seven years, every Sunday. Christmas time, my dad had just died. We came home for dad's funeral. Um, this, this is Sunday before Christmas. Uh, Carolyn asked Reverend Shaw, shouldn't we, get, shouldn't we join the church as a family? And I can't tell you what Reverend Sharp said, but whatever he said, he made all of the sense. We got the call on Monday about my dad passing. We come home, bury dad. First Sunday, January of 1981, we came forward to join West Hills Presbyterian Church, and everybody thought we were already members. Wow. And by the end of the year, I'm elected elder, and all of this is falling in line for this pastor's call. I said, God, if you help me pass the CPA exam, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And so I'm in the church, youth director, Sunday school, um, bookkeeper, worship leadership, everything. And in and, and my career, I'm going, oh, I'm working um, in accounting, great American, uh, Amer American Cancer Society. Every office I go into, there seemed to be a marital problem with somebody that trusted me. I go back to the office, you know, three months later, they're just sharing me how blessed they were. And finally, the Lord caught up with me uh, and said, you said, hey, you want to pass the exam? You passed the exam. Yeah. It's time for you to do what you're called to do. But what was that said? I mean, I know you said people would come to you um, for counseling. Um, what else about your call? Is there anything, you know, like, um, is there like a big light bulb moment? <laughs> oh, that light bulb moment? Yeah. Um, it is, it is September, fall, coming in. I'm sitting at the table, Carolyn's washing dishes, and, um, uh, and, and the, I had, I had a dream about my dad. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said to me, Charles, if you can do a thing, you ought to do it. And when he, the you for me was always second person, not you, mm -hmm, first mm -hmm, person. Mm -hmm. And that, and the spirit hit me right there at the table. See, if you can do a thing, you ought to do it. And, and I get up, I, I get the Bible, and I open the Bible. Uh, First Samuel, David is about to take out Goliath. And, and uh, he says, Goliath, you come to me with sword and spear and shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This day, I'm going to take your head off, and I'm going to feed your body to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and the Lord will know 
that the battle is the Lord. The people will know that the battle is the Lord. Mm -hmm. And he'll give you into my hand. The battle is the Lord is the moment I gave up being afraid because of being a Galagichi. Because that's what was keeping me. That was the block? That was the block. And you, do that, know, you do know that Gullah is being taught at Harvard now. That, well, you see how we had, how we, we had been so damaged yeah. by the negativity of it. Of course, of course. All right? And so the next day, I go to church and acknowledge to my pastors that I was called to ministry. All right. So that was oh. the fear, just the fact that your, your accent, your language, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with it as a professional, right? Mm -hmm. I'm correcting it because I, I got a right well and as a CPA. And, and right. so I was doing, actually, I was doing better than I thought. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but, but that was it. That's what the Lord had to get out of me. Uh, and so um, the next experience was now, now you got to do it. You call, the next experience says, now you got to do it. And... Um, um, when I went to the pastor, I, I, um, I told them I was auditing the city of Atlanta. I was, I was a staff person on the audit that we were doing. I walked from, from City Hall over to a um, deli next to my office building with one of the staff persons, a young lady, getting sandwiches. We walk out of the deli, and there's a man in the street. And he said, hey, come in. Elderly brother, <clears throat> distinguished, green here. So I, you know, I said to her, you know, hold, hold a minute. I walk over to him. He says, uh, you a preacher? Mm. I said, no, I'm thinking about it. He says, you thinking about it? The Lord called you to preach his word. You need to stop thinking about it. You need to go and preach God's word. Mm. And, and um, mm. whoa. You know, and so... I said, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You know, I was, I really studied. And so I turned to her to tell her, you know, you know, wait on me a second. And I turned back. The man is gone. Wow. I saw a ring on his finger that was so distinctive. Every time I'm tempted to draw it out, the spirits don't draw it out. Keep it in your mind's eye. Keep, just keep it in your mind's eye. I go across the street to my office, mm -hmm. upstairs, third floor, and I immediately called my dad. And I said, Dad, I think, I think I've been called to ministry. This is, this is, the, this is, the, this is the do or die right now. Mm -hmm. And what was his and, response? And so I asked him, I said, tell me about your ministry. How were you called? And he told me about plowing in the fields. And, the, and an angel appeared to him and said, Julian, St. Julian, you called to be a preacher. Go across the field there the old man Simeon, an old man Simeon will tell you what you're supposed to do. He said he dropped the rein of the mule, jumped across the ditch and went to Simeon, and Simeon told him, he said, Reb, I've been, Reb, mm. that's just like, like Saul said, mm -hmm. Lord, who are you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Lord is calling you to preach his word, and you must go. And he said he asked Simeon, old man Simeon, one question, if I go with the Lord, go with me. Mm. And that's what I was, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. what I had to deal with. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, he says, yes, the Lord will be with you. And he was, he was 32 years old. Wow. 
I was 32. When you got your first, you know, I think I had been running from mine. I didn't realize it um, in the beginning. Um, in the late 90s, I had had a conversation with some people. And, you know, one person said, oh, you don't, this person will remain nameless. You don't want to do that. Just go and join the choir. And I, but it was some, it was something nagging at me. And so I tried um, volunteering with the Coastal Crisis Chaplaincy. You know, I was doing a bunch of different things to help people, but not the thing that God was calling me to. Um, I served as a guardian at Lightham at one point mm -hmm. to um, stand in the gap for children going through, you know, a crazy domestic situation. Um, and then that didn't work. It seems like everything I tried, it didn't last long. It did not hold my interest. Mm -hmm. I even did a semester of lay school. And um, when I finally decided to go to seminary, um, Professor Grace Yule told, I told her, I said, I'm not going to finish lay school. I'm going to go to seminary. She said, that's exactly where you need to be. And from there, and then, you know, and even then, I, I ran from it. But in 2008, when I had that near fatal car crash on yeah, Main yeah, Road in yeah. front of 704 Main Road, I'll never forget it. Every time I pass by, I said, one day I'm going to go in that church and tell those people what happened in front of this building. And um, I was giving a new hire a tour of the county. And to make a long story short, the brakes gave out on the car. And so, you know, of course, I'm thinking, I've got this 22-year-old kid in my car. I don't want anything to happen to him, blah, blah, blah. So I get inside my head, and I'm like, well, if we go to the right, there's a ditch and a house. Uh, we may end up going through the house, and we may end up dying. But if I go to the left, and there's traffic coming, it's going to be a head-on. So we're just, it's, there's no winning. And so I'm in, the kid is screaming, and I'm in my head trying to figure it out. And I kid you not, Doc, the Holy Spirit said to me in that moment, you cannot control this. And a perfect peace came over me, and I said, well then, God, you're going to have to handle it. And of course, you know, I kept my hand on the wheel, went around the garbage truck, um, went around some little skinny pine trees, and ran into another garbage truck that was parked right there. And so when I got out, the kid is screaming, and I'm asking, are you okay? Use my hand, man. Okay, but you're breathing. You're good. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I get out, and people are running, you know, to help us. And I start laughing, because when I looked up to my left, I was standing in front of a church. Right. And I said, God, okay, I, I give it up. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I'm not going to run anymore. Yeah. And then when I asked you, you said, well, the first thing, Jonesy, do you accept the call? And I said, Doc, I really don't think I have a choice. I think I might die yeah, if I don't right. answer the call. And you said, well, okay, the call is vertical, but the community affirms the call. And I never forgot that. Yeah, well, that's, that's the, the urgency of, of, the, of the community affirming it. Mm -hmm. It's so important. But, but, but my uh, release was... Uh, and, and you you probably don't know, I'm not after you tell you, you're looking at the person who um, was responsible for the general ledger of Atlanta University that put Atlanta University and Clark College, Clark right. College together, all right? Yeah. I, uh, I had opened my own firm. I left the CPA firm, um, which was the largest African-American CPA firm in the country at that time. Uh, I left the firm and opened up my own practice. Um, and it, it didn't go well from, uh, collecting, you know, you get to work, but you got the account receivable and nobody paying you, you know, yeah, you got, got to pay the mortgage. So I went to Atlanta University. Um, a friend of ours from Albany state was the fiscal manager and I, he hired me as the assistant. And when that was fading out. It, it would fade up because I could go to work and I could be busy all day. But when I get home, I couldn't get past 
the den in this flock chair. And the Lord be wrestling with me from mm -hmm. six o'clock until two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And then I have to go to get a nap to get up to go to work. And then mm -hmm. everything is okay. Mm -hmm. It's off my, you know, but the Lord was wrestling with me. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with this financial thing. I will, to make some financial adjustments. Um, when you think everybody's on your side, everybody's not. I go and interview with American Cancer Society to satisfy myself that I'm a good accountant because, because my effort at the college was not being affirmed by some people I thought. So I said to the, the new coming boss, based on who I am and what you want to accomplish, how do you see us working together? He says to me, we'll sit at the table, determine the objectives, and then you go and get it done however you want to get it done. And if you don't get it done, I just fire you and hire somebody else. Wow. What a release. Mm -hmm. Because I know what I could do. Right, right. And sure enough, 22 months later, I walked into his office and I said, Gene, I'm, I'm going to be giving my resignation. I've been, I've been called to ministry in Ghana and then enrolling in seminary. He says, well, I knew that the first day you walked in my office. Wow. He was a, he was a, he was a devout Christian himself mm -hmm. in one of the largest of the um, white churches there in the Atlanta area. But he was so supportive. He gave me the freedom to, to do my work. I was, I was uh, the national financial director uh, for the divisional office of the American Cancer Society, 13 southeastern states and Puerto Rico. Impressive. And, and, and um, he just let me go and do it, and, and, and it went well. And, and so I was satisfied with my, with my accounting career that mm -hmm. I so much love. And so I could give it up. And, and, and so when I, walked, when I walked out of his office, I was God's man. I, I pretty much had packed up my accounting profession. I had my own tax preparation mm -hmm. and bookkeeping. And I did that through seminary, even to my first two years in ministry at Calvin Presbyterian Church before you know, I let it all go. Because because actually when I left the profession, I left sixty percent. When I left the corporate when I left corporate America, I left sixty percent of our income. Wow. Okay. Um, but the point of it is, once I said yes, Lord, it was like duck taken to water. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to teach a duck how to swim. No. No. That's what ministry has been like for me. It has been just what I should have been doing yeah, all along. Yeah. I, I tell people all the time, you know, when I look back over my um, time in seminary, you know, going through, I was enjoying it because I knew I was doing what I was, you know, what I've been called to do. Um, even when it seemed there were some days I'm like, oh, Lord, I don't feel like taking this drive up to do what I saw, blah, blah, blah. But I look back on it now and it's everything is pleasant. And I used to say to you, so what? It's a Process. It is a process. It's a process. It is a process. And I remember yeah. when you told me um, when I first started and I told you about my um, systematic theology class, the first one, and I'm, we won't mention any names here, uh, but there was a person in that class who was just, I mean, we have to introduce ourselves around the table, 
take no more than three minutes. This person probably took 20. <laughs> and at the end of the class, I said to this person, I said, I want to tell you what my pastor told me. You are not in seminary to try and change anybody's mind about who God is and who Jesus is and right. what the Holy Spirit can do. Get the information right. and move on. That's and right. I tell that to anybody. Just get what you, you're not there to change processes. That's you're right. not there to debate anything. Get what you need so you can keep moving. Keep moving. And, um, and of course, it's, I told the person that he just kind of looked at me and I'm like, yeah. Okay. The whole idea is to allow God to shape you for mm -hmm. what God wants you to do. That's right. That's Yeah. And That's it gets it. through. Yeah, yeah. It's a process. It's but it's a beautiful process. It's a beautiful process. It's a beautiful process if you are truly called and you didn't call yourself. It's a beautiful it's process. It's a beautiful process. I've had the privilege of serving on my seminary board mm -hmm. for 10 years. Um, I've had the privilege of serving on Presbyterian College board uh, for 10 years. Um, um, I've been serving on the denomination's conference center Montreal Conference Center now mm -hmm. for the past five years. That's, that's just denominational stuff. Um, and so I'm thankful. I'm, I've been blessed. I tell folks that um, my ministry, in no way can I say, has been crafted after my dad's ministry. Um, I've had the privilege of going uh, and walking um, Paul's missionary journey in Greece, chapter 16 and 17 of the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. I've been to Israel twice to walk the Via Della Rosa, the way Jesus walked from the time he was arrested until he was crucified. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've just had experiences in Christ's ministry that my dad, my brothers, and, and, and all my sister has, has ever had. And so I'm humbled by that. And um, that's why I see it. It's easy to see the responsibility of ministry. The question is whether one is humble enough to see the privilege that you've been given. Uh. And so I, I count it a privilege for what I've had, and I don't take it for granted. Well, you know, there was a moment, um, a Saturday morning class I had, and back then Erskine had um, satellite, a satellite campus in Somerville and one in Charleston at Westminster Press. And um, I was going, I, you know, I'd gotten in the car, and I was going, and as soon as I turned, made a right turn off of my street onto the next street, out of the blue, the Holy Spirit said to me, remember, you're going to be responsible for a lot of souls. It made me stop. I had to pull over mm -hmm. because it just came out of nowhere. I wasn't even, you know, thinking. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it, it almost took my breath away. And I was like, oh, my God, that is, that's, that's, it yes. was a, like a reminder. What you're doing, you're enjoying it, but you have to know it comes with, with great responsibility. Great responsibility. You know, and yeah. so I always remember that, and I always entertain wise counsel. And I have no problems with calling you or Reverend Carolyn or anybody in ministry who I feel can help me, um, help me grow and help me to be better. Yeah, and, you know? and you've ne if you haven't done it before, uh, wisdom says, boy, you know, if I can get some help in analyzing, mm -hmm. I'm gonna ha I have to make the decision, mm -hmm. and I know the context. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, but somebody else's experience can certainly help yeah. guide along the way. Now, you know. tell us about, okay, now, present day. You know the climate that we're in. You know the issues that we're facing. What do you tell young people today um, who are out in the streets protesting police, police brutality, protesting inequality, um, income inequality, housing inequality, medical disparities, what are you, what's, what, what, what's the prophetic word? What do you say? Well, uh, the prophetic word for me is um, uh, seek 
and you will find. Knock, the doors will be open. Ask, it will be given. The reverse of that is not seeking, not knocking, and not asking. And therefore, there is no change. Um, young people today are in, they're not in a unique position because every generation is in its position to either do nothing and allow things to be the same or risk and make sacrifices for things to change. One of my, one of my great disappointment or sorrows is that I actually feel today that things are as bad as they were mm. in 1965 when I entered that racist environment. Except now, the racist environment is not limited to the campus. It is limited to everywhere I go. It's global. I don't, I don't, I don't leave home ignorant of the fact that I may not be coming back. Right. So I say to young people, you have to participate in the change. In the natural order, you must know what the issues are and you must take the necessary precautions. But you can ill afford not to participate. Right. Um, no right from wrong. You don't have to you don't have to violate the law. You do want to be a protester. You don't want to be a looter. You don't want to be an arsonist um, because the enemy is going to use that uh, against you. Mm -hmm. To shut it down. Yeah, it's but to, to not participate, to discredit it, mm -hmm. but to not participate, you don't have a choice. You, you have to participate in some way mm -hmm. uh, to make the change. Um, we're at risk. We're at risk. There's an evil that is determined to destroy the experience of a democracy. That's what, this has been an experience. And, and we realize it's been an experience because all the leadership have to do is follow the traditions. They don't, they don't even have to do that. There's no law. There's nobody going to come and lock them up. Right. I mean, they, they, those who have been found guilty in his circle have actually violated the law in an environment of enough people still wanting to uphold the law. But the more this grows in the direction of evil and wrong, then there is no law because one person will be the law, whatever, whatever he says. And so um, that this democratic experience has until November 3rd, maybe, maybe, no, I would say until December 21st. It really has until December 21st to correct itself. After that date, it either is or it won't be. Tell us about your work um, with the Charleston Area Justice Ministry. When I was in Philadelphia, we started a similar ministry, um, PIA, um, Philadelphia Interfaith Action. And the effort there was to address the issue of, of housing. Mm -hmm. There's so many homeless people. Uh, we were able to turn a, a six block area to revitalize it, to address the name of homelessness. 
So I when when um, the director of DART Direct Action Research Training Center um, came to visit me and mm -hmm. asked of my interest in participating, I I had seen it work. I knew it could work ecumenically. That's mm -hmm. ecumenically blacks and white working together. Now the, the question was, could it happen in Charleston, South Carolina? Mm. So I was willing to. There was enough names from the African American community, pastors, who had been conversated with. There was no decision at that point. It wasn't even the first meeting at that point. But I knew this could be good. And so um, I consented to meet um, with the organizing uh, director, and the group decided, ecumenically black and white, that we would give it a go. Um, Justice was where I've been, particularly when it comes to public education mm -hmm. um, and police brutality. Uh, we didn't, and we, we, we looked at police brutality for the first three years and didn't want to touch it because we, we were not strong enough ecumenically, right. blacks and whites together, to touch that issue. Right. I have been totally pleased uh, about uh, the ecumenical effort, the white brothers and sisters who have been at the table the full eight years. And it's, and it's happened, Pastor, because we've taken the time to be honest, to share our experiences, our concerns, and there have been enough white brothers and sisters that says, well, you know, I did not know all of this was happening. My privileged status did not allow me to see it. But now that I see it, and it really began with, with uh, Trayvon Martin, mm -hmm. um, Tremere Rice, and boy, when... Walter Scott was shot. Right. That really opened a lot of folks' eyes. Um, I've served as the organizing uh, treasurer. Uh, I have served two years as secretary. I've served two years as co-president. Um, and I serve as co-president when we, um, let's just say, convince the Charleston City Council that this city needed to have an independent audit of its police department for racial bias. Mm -hmm. It took us two full years of effort to get that council to say yes, and now they're satisfied and glad that they did. We're just now getting North Charleston to do the same thing, coming out of every, what everybody saw with Walter, um, with George Floyd. Yes. Um, so I'm serving on the housing task force where we're dealing with affordable housing. There's an issue with transportation for those who one, employment, but don't have transportation to and from. Um, the expulsion of our kids from the classroom, they can't be educated. We've addressed that issues to reduce the numbers significantly by uh, addressing the whole issue of, of um, restorative justice uh, and um, um, helping teachers understand how to negotiate conflict between kids. We've dealt with the issue of unemployment. Um, 25% unemployment in the city, but 40% unemployment upon unemployment upon, with uh, among youth, African-American youth. Mm -hmm. So we've addressed those issues as well. I, I, I love the ministry. As I am changing and dropping some of my activities, Charleston Atlanta Justice Ministry is one that I will stay with. Okay. Yeah. Talk to us about, I think one of the first problems that Cajun dealt with was um, um, payment. 
um, employees pay being docked or not being yes. paid fully um, tips or something wage, like that? Wage, 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 that's it. Thank you. Um, consider that if an employee were to take five dollars <laughs> out of the till of of the employer, uh, if the employee were to take a bag of chips and put it in his or her purse on the way out, mm -hmm. that employer will can have them prosecuted to the fullness of the law. But consider that the employer stealing from the employee $40 billion a year when the employer have the employee working off the clock. When the employer have the employee taking care of the expenses for the uniform. When the employer takes the tips that the waitress has earned and, and split it with those who did not do any of the service. Right. Um, uh, take for instance the employer, let a, a person go and say, well, your final check will be in the mail, but they never send the mail. Take for instance the employer in the payroll department person uh, turn in their time card for eight hours, but what shows up on the paycheck is seven hours and 15 minutes. This is considering employer taking a half an hour, 45 minutes of your pay all year. And you are too afraid to say anything because you need the job. Wage it's, death. Just wage plain and simple wage death. $40 billion a year. So what the Charleston Area Justice Ministry did, we pushed the county to establish a program wherein folks who lose their money, and sometimes it's $50, it's $25. Mm -hmm. But for somebody who's only making minimum wage, that's a significant, Amount. that's transportation to work in the first place. That's, right. that's child care, that's gasoline. Um, and so we have the county to fund a nonprofit organization, legal organization, to make it possible for an employee who has a claim to go and get legal assistance. They don't have money for a lawyer. Right. A lawyer's not going to take a $200 case right. when his hourly rate is $200, right? And so now we, we've got a nonprofit, and, and even though it could be a fee base, it'll be fee based on what the nonprofit can collect for the employee. So the nonprofit then intervenes for the employee and says, you need to write this. This is a complaint. This is what you need to correct with your employee. We'll arbitrate it for you. But if you don't come to the table to fix this, then you're gonna go, you're gonna go to court, and then right. it's gonna cost you some more money. Right. I can't tell you how many of these young ladies who work in these Asians, the nail, uh -huh, thing, the nail shops, the nail shops, how they locally, look, and it's national. We say locally, yeah, yeah. but it's a national yeah, it's a reality. National, yeah, it's a national reality. But I didn't even think about. I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what I was thinking, but I didn't think it was a big problem. Locally. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. The restaurants, the, the, the nail places, mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and the restaurants are, are the key violators. Um, and they, a lot of them settle in case out of court and out of the media mm -hmm. eyesight. But that's, that's a, it's a major problem locally. Yeah, I can see that because I remember being in high school and um, I was a waitress at a restaurant on yeah. Edisto Beach. And at that time, that was back in between 81 and 85. Yeah. And my hourly salary was $2.10, and everything else came from tips. Yeah, well, 
Yeah. That was in the 80s. Yeah, well, so, yeah. you can't do that. that would be, they can minimize your hours. Yeah, and then you have to split your tip with the busboy. You don't split your tip. That's illegal. Wow. And you don't cover your own uniform. It's the employer's uniform. It's not right. you. That's not your They're own. supposed to. And people don't know the, these things. Uh, and so the effort was to educate the public about this. So what, yeah. do, you, what do you see... Um, so what is Cajun undertaking next? I know there's the housing issue. What about transportation? Transportation is already on the table. Transportation, the, there's, a, there's a corridor from the airport to downtown that the city has been paying for, few riders. But we can't get them to change the route and the timing to get people who need transportation to and from work. Mm -hmm. Major issue. Excuse me. So... There's this effort to make the city look good by providing transportation for people who can afford it while overlooking the people who need transportation so they could work, go shopping, go to the doctors, hospital. Um, uh, the, and and we've, we've identified a number of routes that they, they just improved the frequency. Mm -hmm. One of the studies has been that you have to have certain number of residential uh, housing along the transportation route to make it profitable. So that's why we're dealing with affordable housing mm -hmm. along with transportation. Um, the, the federal government now is withholding monies, um, spending monies differently. Mm -hmm. It's no different than when, when President Trump came to the White House, he shut down the Department of Justice work in um, auditing these municipal police departments right. and won't let those report get out to the public because we already know what's in them. Right. And, but you've got to expose it in order for them to be a change. So transportation is one uh, that we're working on. We're right now on the very front end of this next cycle. Mm -hmm. Those cycles start with house meetings. So now would be a perfect time to start a ministry because you get to talk to the folks in your ministry about what they are concerned about firsthand. Right. And when people start sharing um, what, what keeps them up at night, what they're angry about, and, and you give them an opportunity to do that freely without qualifying it, you become, you come, we come to know what we need to work on. What do you think the future holds for this country and race relations? I'm afraid. Why? The president and Republicans have succeeded in um, making the racist, malicious a very public part of the American experience. And for me, we are going to see violence ahead. Um, unless Joe Biden is elected and succeeds in being inaugurated into office as president, I really believe the democracy is dead. There's no way four more years of Donald Trump will cause America to be the nation that she has been seeking to be. It would have stopped 
the moment he came down those escalators. It's all thrown together. I heard somebody, one of the commentators said, and it was, it was, and I can't quote it exactly, and I've already forgotten who said it, that these folks got so sick of Barack Obama that they vomited Donald Trump. Mm. That's pretty accurate. That's pretty, that's pretty, and that's, that's, that's yeah, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, um, he is clearly betting on there's enough white people that want this nation to be white that he would be reelected. And my fear is that um, we should not be deceived that the polling says he's at 40%. Because 40% of the racists and 10% of those who are totally going to vote their 401k plans and their economics, right. along with not allowing people to vote and throwing people vote out and not letting the post office get people vote to be counted mm -hmm. will be enough for him to steal this election. So it's not that there won't be enough people voted right. to elect Joe Biden. There will be enough votes that will not get counted because of what Donald Trump and the Republicans have done. So as colleagues in ministry, what do you feel we're called to do? I mean, I find I'm using electionary um, to craft all of my sermons. I think there's this one instance where I, I ended up somewhere else because something pressing, you know, was pressing on me. But as pastors, how do we speak truth to our congregants? How do we speak truth to power that there's a moral a, 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 a catastrophe? Just I mean, it's just. It's waiting. It's not waiting to happen. It's happening. It's happening. How do we? How how do as pastors? How do we navigate that? How do we address that? I think that we have some responsibility to speak to it. Well, well, as pastors, as pastors, uh, that's the one-on-one -on -one relationship with every person. Mm -hmm. With preachers, as a preacher, we have the we have a pulpit that we can be faithful to the word of God as best we are discerning. Then as members of the community and social change, we need to be involved in, in, in community transformation, not only church leadership, but community transformation. Right. And I'm thankful for Charles Neer Justice Ministry, uh, another friend of mine um, whom you know, we were on the telephone um, day before yesterday with local Black Lives Matters. Um, as we saw what happened last Saturday. In Kenosha, Wisconsin. No, no. What happened in Charleston. Last, last not this past Saturday. Let me see. Yeah, last Saturday. Not this past Saturday. Saturday before. Uh -huh. there, was, there was a march downtown. Principally led by our white brothers and sisters. Black Lives Matter. Well, Charleston Police Department ran up on them and arrested those folks. It was, and, and, and you could, I was in New York. I was moving Susan home. And you can clearly see that they were pulling these white brothers and sisters aside out with, with, with a sense of discipline and self-respect and almost like they're being chastised. 
in, in the, the spirit in me, and this is what Black Lives Matter is concerned about, it was just trying to separate the white mm-hmm. brothers and sisters who were supporting this movement to tell them, y'all need to step aside now because when we come, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. Right? And so, and so what I'm doing, uh, when you talk about preaching, you using the lectionary, I'm doing a series of sermons um, because I, I, I feel the Spirit has called me to get Edisto Presbyterian Church prepared for what is coming. And this is such an emotional time. It is. And so Psalm 13, um, David is, um, he's hiding out from Saul. Mm-hmm. Saul is about, if, if he sneezes, Saul will know where his stronghold is hiding place. Saul, Saul capture him and kill him. So David is in much stress. His emotions are running high. And in the first four verses, you'll find, you'll find David's anger, his depression, mm-hmm. his jealousy, and his fear. He is, he is, he is emotional. And he's crying out to the Lord about, where are you? Where, where, listen, I can't handle this. Mm-hmm. And that's what I believe our, our people are. They, are. they are under great stress, emotional stress, and they need to know how to handle their anger, their fears, their depression, and even the jealousy mm-hmm. that, that they are seeing and experiencing. And David answers and gives his response in the, in the last two verses, verse four and five. Uh, that he he trusts in the unfailing love of the Lord. Uh, he he he's going to sing Zion's song. Uh, he's going to follow the Lord's will. Why? Because the Lord has already been good to him. That's right. And so, my role for the next it'll be a it'll be a six sermon series, and for the next six weeks before the election, I said to them on yesterday. That um, it's 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 in a it's the word is to equip you now to help you see more clearly what is coming and how you need to handle the stress of it yeah. and practicing be it now. Be prepared. You, it's a preparation time. Yeah, be preparation. Want to be wrong about the violence that could happen, but even as you entered, came in today, Donald, the president, Donald, the president was spewing, spewing out a kind of violent v- rhetoric that is totally intended to divide the country. Of course. Are you either for me or you not. Mm-hmm. And, and I know he lost, the, he lost the popular vote back in 2016, but it just seems like to me on some subconscious level, this country got what it wanted. And I may be wrong, but on some level, because the country couldn't get over the fact that Barack Hussein Obama had been elected, and like you said earlier, someone said, you know, it was so much, it grieved them so much they vomited, but, you know, the current president. To me, when I look at it, I'm like, subconsciously, there had to be enough people to believe in this particular president no matter what, to the detriment of other people. I think what bothers me the most is that two-thirds of the, or three-quarters of the country can be okay with the other remaining being in knots, and you know, being on pins and needles. I don't understand how this country 
where the majority feels like as long as they're okay, we can figure out our stuff as well. How can you sleep at night knowing that there's a segment of the population that's always going to be walking in fear? For me, that is the very core of racism. It's, it's, this is a race issue. It is. We can have the same economy under Democrat. Mm -hmm. We can have this same volatility though. Right. It's racism. And that's what I'm saying for 400 years, being white is the privilege. And so folks are saying, as long as I'm white, Donald Trump will take care of me. I remember the first woman I heard say that. If, they, if this is going to be a dictatorship, I want Donald Trump to be the dictator. That's what they, and I heard this two years ago. Okay? Um, and so my, my, my reflection is that um, it wasn't Donald Trump as president. The Russians succeeded in Hillary Clinton not as president. When I, when I think about the 70,000 votes that the president got to win three battleground states, James Comey, in reopening the email mm -hmm. personal service. 10 days within the election, is what really lost the election. I want it for Trump right. because so many of us stay home thinking that she already had it won, not realizing how the Russians had damaged us against Hillary. I, I mean, I talked to some very intelligent people in 2016, African-Americans, that I was totally surprised of their opinion of Hillary Clinton, not really realizing who Donald Trump was. So Donald Trump is betting on the same thing. He's betting on on the violence, uh, the the looting, he you know, the fires, the burning, because he won't talk about the reason for it. Right. He's talking about it. And so if you're white and you have and you it's easy for you to say, Well, I don't want that, then you you'll vote for Donald Trump. But you were voting, and you were voting against the democracy because you're voting for a totalitarianism, or you're voting for authoritarianism, or you're voting for a dictatorship because that's what you're going to get come January 21st, 2021. What's our hope, Doc? Our, our hope is that we, the Democrats, those who would vote for Joe Biden, would overwhelmingly do so in a manner that Trump's fight simply becomes a legal fight, not a defensive fight of defending that he actually won. Um, I think that's the only hope for, and, and, and because, because the Democrats can win at uh, local offices. Mm -hmm. um, we need to take the Senate and the House if we can't take the White House. 
That, that's the only hope. And, 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 and I heard one of the right-wingers said the other day that win or lose. He's telling, he, he telling them folks, uh, get ready, win or lose. Okay? So get, get armed, get your bullets ready. Uh, get your um, survival camp fully stocked. Mm -hmm. Because we're going to do this. And every day you listen to the president, that's the direction in which we headed. I, I, that, that sounds, I'm sounding not without much hope, but my hope is it is in the electoral process. But it needs to be overwhelming. That's the hope. That's the hope. Dr. Hayward, thank you so much for spending time with me and for sharing your story with us. Um, you'll never know how much I appreciate it. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about uh, some things that I really haven't talked about to many people and certainly haven't had an opportunity to think about it in, in, in much depth. Reverend Carolyn knows, uh, my sons, my daughters know, but I haven't really shared um, that school journey with much, many of any people. I'm pleased with life, Pat. Mm -hmm. um, I've done what I think the Lord has called me to do. I'm continuing to do that. And um, I'm just going to wait and see. No, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to work and see what the end is going to be. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. All right. Be blessed. Good night. Bless Thanks for joining us this week on She Speaks Too. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at She Speaks Too. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode and leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. See you next week.